Hi, everyone. Welcome to April's edition of Beer with BMSIS. This is the podcast that features the ideas, research, and philosophies of the members of the Blue Marble Space Institute of Science. If you'd like to learn more about our institute, you can check us out on the web at bmsis.org, and you can listen to uh, previous editions of our podcast at bmsis.org slash podcast. My name is Jacob Huck-Misra. Thanks for listening. We have a great show for you today. We have Jeff Bowman, who's going to tell us about some of his experiences in D.C. in the policy world, about uh, talking to legislatures and uh, thinking about the future of soft money science. But first, to kick things off, we have Emma Miller, who was our presenter last month. And uh, this month, she's here to introduce us to one of her favorite tasty beverages. And as, as our custom is, I remind you that if you were consuming alcohol, to observe the local laws of uh, the land in which you live. So, Emma, thank you. <laughs> thank you, Jacob. <laughs> well, let's see. You know, I struggled to try to find which one of these beers I was really going to do today. And uh, so I kind of spent a little time digging through the different beers. And what I came up with, since I'm in Texas, I figured I'd uh, feature a Texas beverage. So this is the beverage. It's called, uh, let's see, there we go, Third Shift. <laughs> <laughs> Because, uh, you know, there are several shifts when you work. So, anyways, it's uh, it's an amber lager. It's made in Fort Worth by the Coors Brewing Company. It has about 5.3% alcohol. And if you're watching your calories, it's only 159. <laughs> it's similar to a Vienna-style lager. So, you know, I tasted it, of course. And uh, it's got a little sweet maltiness to it. But... It's got a little aftertaste, leaving just a slight bitter taste to it. But it's pretty good. It kind of reminded me of Mexico's Bohemia. So, anyways, cheers. <laughs> so today, I'm uh, proud to introduce Jeff Bauman, who is a doctoral candidate in biological oceanography and astrobiology at the University of Washington, where he studies microbial ecology and evolution in sea and glacial ice. He will be starting a postdoctoral fellowship at the Lamont Darty Earth Observatory in October. Congrats! And Jeff recently attended the AAAS Catalyzing Advocacy in Science Workshop in Washington, D.C., uh, which is an experience that he'll be talking about with us today. So, Jeff? Thank you, Emma. So, I just got back from the uh, workshop last night. So, what I'm going to do is they suggest that we keep it very informal. I will start by showing a, a real quick video that they shared with us that is <laughs> probably a little bit preaching to the choir because it's talking about the need for, for more funding in science. Um, and they're using uh, what they're calling the innovation gap um, as, as the argument for enhanced investment in research and development, which is probably not a tough sell to anybody uh, in this particular audience. But it's a clever video, and I think it does a, a good job of illustrating how we can lay the, the, the case for increased science uh, funding out well. And so uh, I'm going to share it for that purpose. Um, and then after that, I'll, I'll describe the workshop a little bit and kind of uh, pitch it in case anybody knows, graduate students who are interested in going next year. This was the, the pilot year for this workshop, um, and they, they hope to, to hold it every year. And then I'll talk a little bit about uh, some of the things that I learned at the workshop and uh, learned in the course of going around and talking to the Washington State Congressional Delegation, which was a, a very interesting experience for me. I'd had no previous experience talking to uh, anybody who works in a congressional office before. So I'll start by uh, sharing this video. are worried about our federal budget deficit. 
But people who worry about our country's economic health also need to understand that we're creating another kind of deficit in the U.S. that impacts every community and industry in the country, the innovation deficit. America's economy has been built on innovation and new ideas that create jobs and healthy communities. After World War II, our federal government helped the U.S. grow the world's strongest economy with strategic investments in education, science, and technology that made our country the world's innovation leader. Research funded by the National Science Foundation, the National Institutes of Health, NASA, and the Departments of Defense, Energy, Agriculture, and Commerce has led to life-saving vaccines, lasers, MRI, touchscreens, GPS, and even the Internet. In fact, more than half our country's economic growth in recent decades has been thanks to innovation, much of which has resulted from federally funded scientific research. Innovation has made the United States the leading economic power in the world. It's why new industries have their roots here in the U.S. and why the smartest people from all over the world want to be at our universities. It's the reason our men and women in uniform are equipped with the world's most advanced technology. But now, that's changing. Scientists and business leaders agree that a growing innovation deficit means the U.S. could lose its lead in science and technology. And once that lead is lost, it could be difficult to regain. So what is the innovation deficit? It's the widening gap between the actual level of federal government funding for research and education and what the investment needs to be if the United States is to remain the world's innovation leader. Let's look at it another way. Every country has great minds. When we invest in those great minds by supporting education, science, and innovation, it leads to a strong economy. But if we cut back our investment while other countries grow theirs, we fall behind. Americans' investments in research and higher education are now flat or declining, while others, such as China, Singapore, Korea, and the EU, are dramatically increasing their funding in those areas. Federal budget cuts to science and education programs over the past several years, compounded by sequestration, helped create this deficit. If we don't address the innovation deficit, it will be impossible to grow our economy, overcome our budget deficit, and create the jobs of the future as the rest of the world makes great strides. And the stakes are high. What country will become the magnet for the world's best and brightest scientists and engineers? What country will create the next information technology industry or biotechnology revolution? Who will make the next big discoveries in medical treatments, devices, and life-saving drugs? Will the United States continue to be the innovation leader, or will we be just another competitor? If the United States is to remain the world's innovation leader, we must close the innovation deficit by growing and sustaining federal investments in scientific research and education. We need students and teachers who are challenged to think critically and ask tough questions. We need laboratories that have the resources to break new ground. We need great universities that attract and grow great thinkers. Together, we can make it happen. Please, tell your member of Congress to close the innovation deficit by supporting strong funding for research and education. America's future prosperity and national security depend on it. For more information, visit www.innovationdeficit.org or follow the conversation on Twitter with the hashtag InnovationDeficit. Um, I think that that's a good example of, uh, of a case that can be made on kind of a strategic level. As, as scientists, 
Um, and certainly I'm fond of this category. I would love to see just the need for acquiring basic knowledge to be an adequate justification for a large uh, federal investment in, in science and research. That argument works for some. It does not work for a lot of people. Um, and so one thing that I, I really began to appreciate after the last couple days is that if you're making these types of arguments to certainly to members of Congress as well as to the general public, um, a lot of people need to be swayed by these larger strategic arguments. And so as the scientific community gets better at laying out why we need these federal investments in, in research and development, I think we can start to build a, a stronger case. The other um, link I was going to share was for the uh, AAAS case workshop website itself, um, which has um, just kind of our uh, agenda for the last couple of days and would be useful if anybody knows uh, graduate students who are interested in going to it in the future. Right now, they have only are targeting graduate students in it, unfortunately, not uh, postdocs and junior faculty, which maybe is something that they'll change in the future. Um, I'll just give you a, a quick summary of how the workshop went. And because this talk is meant to be uh, very informal, please just uh, stop me at any point in time if anybody wants to jump in with questions or comments or anything else. Uh, but basically what they did was they got us all together, uh, graduate students from a variety of institutions that had um, opted into this uh, AAAS-funded pilot program, of which the University of Washington was one. So two of us went there from the University of Washington. There were about 60 people in attendance at this workshop total. And uh, they brought us all together, and they kind of gave us a quick primer in how the federal budget process works, how Congress works. And then on day three, we went around to our respective congressional delegations and just talked to them a little bit about how science funding works all the way down, kind of in the weeds, as it were, down at our level. So there were quite a few things that um, <laughs> I did not know about um, the Congress and the budget process going into this. And uh, we don't really have time to, to go through the whole rundown of how the process works. But a couple things that really jumped out at me that I think are very relevant for how science is funded or not funded uh, that I'll just bring up here very quickly. So these are just a, a quick sampling of things that I didn't know uh, before going into this that I, I now appreciate. One is that um, we hear all this talk, you know, every budget cycle about this fight between the executive branch and, uh, and the House and the Senate about what the budget will be. That's a relatively new thing. The budget process in its, its current form has only existed since 1974. It was one of the fallouts of the, the Nixon White House and uh, prior to that point, uh, the process of developing a budget was very different, and, and there wasn't as much opportunity for back-and-forth negotiations, which have resulted in a lot of the, the slowdowns that we currently have. Currently, R&D funding has actually, at the federal level, has actually stayed fairly constant as a fraction of what we call discretionary spending over the last few years. The problem is that the portion of the federal bu budget that forms discretionary spending has has been dramatically decreased. So you could think of the uh, federal budget as, as falling into two broad categories. You have discretionary funding and you have mandatory funding. Uh, mandatory funding is about 66% of the total funding pie, and that's dominated by Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, and defense. And then there's a relatively small piece of that pie that is all other mandatory spending, which goes to infrastructure and, and things like this. So really, it's the three things that we hear the most about in these budget discussions, which are Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, and defense. That's most of what we spend our money on. There's that little piece of the pie that is then discretionary spending, of which a portion of that is, uh, is R&D. 
And so R&D has stayed flat within that portion of the pie, but that overall portion of the pie has shrunk, if that makes sense. Uh, the other thing that I really came away with appreciation of, from my exposure to the media, from the people that I talk to, I have certainly developed this feeling that science is is broadly supported on the Democratic side and broadly less supported on the Republican side. And one thing that I came away with um, is that that's a fairly skewed perspective. Um, and if you actually look in at the 2013 budget, uh, you can actually really see how that doesn't quite play out that way. So historically, science has been a very bipartisan undertaking. And in certain points in the past, Various Republican members of Congress have actually been some of the biggest supporters of increased science funding, and there are certain Democrats that are actually fairly suspicious of, of science and the scientific process. It doesn't break down as cleanly as, as I had believed going in. Um, it was very interesting looking at the 2013 budget. You'll see very specific line items where the Republican-controlled House was suggesting a greater piece of the funding pie to uh, certain scientific agencies than did the the more democratically controlled Senate, um, or even uh, the Obama White House was, uh, which was actually very informative for me, uh, not what I would have expected. Um, and the final thing that I really took away, and this is coming mostly from our meetings yesterday with the Washington State Congressional Delegation, the congressional delegations and particularly the congressional staffers who have a tremendous amount of control over what happens um, in both the House and the Senate have no, really no idea how science funding levels at their 30,000-foot view where they're looking at actually impact jobs and science spending at the institution level. Um, and that was really, really telling. And that's what I'll, I'll spend most of the rest of my time uh, talking about here. So on that note, um, we shared around a, a PDF uh, labeled funding issues. And depending on how you're viewing uh, the FUSE meeting, you may or may not be able to see this. But I'll bring it up here shortly. I think uh, Jacob also sent around a, a copy of this. But uh, this was... <laughs> Developed fairly quickly the the night before uh, we were going to meet with these congressional delegations. I felt like I needed to have some kind of document summarizing my thoughts that I could bring to them. These are people that are getting kind of diluted with a fire hose from their constituents every day. People are coming in with their particular things that they want addressed. So I wanted some bullet points that I could just hand them as a as a summary of our discussion that they could maybe would maybe help those ideas stick in their mind. So the big problem, well, there are many big problems to science funding, but the one that I wanted to focus on in my discussions with them was the ability for faculty members, whether they be soft money faculty members or hard money faculty members, to actually support their positions under the current funding scheme. So to focus those discussions, I took kind of the typical case of a faculty member at the University of Washington working in the physical or life sciences who has your sort of traditional academic appointment of a 50% position. Um, and that represents a situation that's much better than many of the situations that are out there. There are a lot of soft money positions out there where people have no guaranteed salary for their particular science position. So here we're going to consider the better case scenario where somebody is offered a faculty position at the 50% level. Um, I did a little bit of quick uh, research on what the typical professorial salary was at the University of Washington. This is a public institution. The salaries are a matter of public record. Uh, so you can go to the state of Washington website. You can download a spreadsheet showing you everybody's salary that has the word professor in their title. Um, and then you kind of have to filter that in a variety of ways to get rid of some weird cases that don't really fit in. 
Uh, depending on how you filter that, you get a, a mean salary of approximately $113,000 per year. That's a fairly healthy salary in this uh, day and age, although that also includes very senior researchers that are, are, are getting that, which you could argue whether or not that's a fair salary for a senior researcher. But the problem is that the university is only guaranteeing 50% of that salary. So that means that a junior faculty member coming in is getting you know, somewhere on the order of uh, $50,000 a year, paid for by the university, they are then required to raise the rest of their salary from grants. If you can get access to grants, that's great. You can you can write enough grants to get the rest of your salary as well as pay your graduate students and actually fund your lab and your research effort. If you can't, then you don't. And that represents something of a hardship and there's a direct impact then on the quality of the education that the University of Washington can provide to its students based on the ability of these faculty members to, to get or not get the remainder of their salary. So what I wanted to talk to them about was whether this is really a good model or not. Um, there are other countries that do things very differently. I know in the Canadian model, um, there's a little bit more funding for specific chairs within institutions. Uh, perhaps this is a model that the United States could explore. It's just one idea. Uh, there are other uh, ways to other things to look at here, too, whether grants are being dispersed kind of fairly between different investigators, particularly within the health sciences. You'll find very successful labs with a, a whole lot of, of grants. Perhaps there's a mechanism to um, to spread those out a little bit better between uh, different investigators. And also, I think the size of your typical research grant needs to be looked at. Um, in some of the research that I was doing, um, I found at least for the NSF division that I'm most closely associated with, which is the division of, of polar research, um, the, te the, the mean single investigator award is about $400,000. Um, if you consider your typical institutional overhead, um, Blue Marble Space is a bit of an exception with its uh, relatively modest 10% overhead. If you consider something like the University of Washington, where overhead is about 56%, you're immediately losing half of that award um, to institutional overhead. And it's, I don't like it as a researcher. It's a bit understandable in that they do need to support their infrastructure. But that 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 means that for three years, you have $200,000 to pay for graduate students and uh, equipment. And then if you have anything left over, your own salary. And uh, if you try to do the math on that, it simply doesn't work. That means you have to fund a whole lot of awards at the same time to make up the rest of your salary, let alone fund your research effort in your lab. Considering that in a NSF division, even the best NSF divisions have maybe a 10% funding rate on their grants, and that's, that's relatively generous. There are a lot of funding divisions within NSF that are far below 10%. So you can consider the number of grants that a, particularly a junior faculty member, needs to write in order to get enough funded to to keep their lab going, let alone make up their own salary. And this is really just, if you try to do the math on it, it's just an unsustainable thing. And it's really hampering the ability of professors to do quality education, which is a major component of their research. It's, it's hampering their efforts to do other activities that aren't directly paid for, like peer review, which is a very time-consuming activity. And there are a lot of issues coming out now with the quality of peer review. Um, and as papers get more and more data intensive and more and more technical, it's going to become more and more important for people to spend days and even weeks doing quality peer review. And this is something that you can't do if you have to write 15 grants a year in order to get maybe two of them funded in order to just make the rest of your salary. It certainly isn't a tenable thing. 
So those were the, the issues that I wanted to bring forward uh, to the congressional staffers that I was meeting with. And what was quite interesting was the fact that all of this is completely new knowledge to them. Um, they have no idea, even for the Seattle and Washington area congressional delegations, they have no idea that the average faculty members at the University of Washington is funded at the 50% level and is dependent on federal grants to make up the rest of that. Um, they have no idea that graduate students are primarily brought in under federally funded grants, and if the federally funded grants aren't there, then those graduate students don't get to come to the university. Um, all of this is just completely off the radar, and why wouldn't it be? They have no direct experience with this environment, and they're operating up here at 50,000 feet. They have no ability to go down into the weeds unless somebody comes and talks to them and says, hey, this is how it is. And if you're taking these federal grants away from the university, then you're taking employees away from the university, and you're taking directly taking R&D dollars away from the university. So we had uh, very positive responses to the congressional delegations that we went around with. I was going around with another researcher named Kelly Fleming, who's a senior graduate student in uh, University of Washington's Department of um, Chemical Engineering. And also accompanying us was the University of Washington's full-time uh, lobbyist who advocates on behalf of, of university interests in Washington, D.C. And without her help, it would have been very difficult to, literally very difficult to navigate the, uh, the, <laughs> the area that we had to cover to get to the different offices, but also more figuratively to navigate the, uh, the ins and outs of the protocols of dealing with these different congressional delegations. So that was the, the, the points that I was bringing to them in these meetings, and uh, the responses were very good, but as I said, this was completely novel information for them, uh, which was really, really eye-opening to me. And so I would end the 20-minute the, uh, spiel here with a, a bit of a call to action. The final thing that I kind of took away from the last three days is that the congressional delegations really do require rely on their constituents to bring these types of issues forward. And the fact that despite the large number of people in, in say, my congressional di uh, district that are reliant on federal research dollars for their position, um, this is the first that the science member of the delegation staff had really heard of these types of issues, um, which means that nobody else has gone and talked to them about it. So I would encourage anybody to, with an interest in these matters or with an interest in any other matter that's, that's important to them, to, to take the time to write a letter or call or visit your congressional delegation, either when they're here in Washington or if you are visiting Washington, D.C. I kind of assumed that I was a quiet voice in a very large, noisy environment that they work in, and that's not actually necessarily the case. They really are kind of keenly listening for voices from their um, from their districts to come forward and tell them what the issues are, and, and they're actually quite responsive to, to them. So please, if you're a, a researcher and you have an interest in these things, think about them a little bit and then bring them to the attention of your congressional delegation. And, um, you know, if enough people do this, we'll start to see some some more informed actions taken on, on the part of those delegations towards these issues. So uh, with that, I'll, I'll, I'll end the... My presentation portion of it, I'm sorry there weren't more kind of graphics to share with you guys, but <laughs> I just didn't quite have the, uh, the energy on the plane last night to, to come up with some graphics. But um, I would love to, to open this up to a broader um, discussion, and if you guys um, have details or, or experiences that you'd like to share on it, I'd, be, I'd love to hear them. No, thanks a lot, Jeff. That was uh, excellent. And I think cool. a lot of the points you hit on were some of the motivation for our founding the Blue Marble Space Institute of Science. Yeah. Um, there are a lot of issues with tremendous overheads and the requirements to not fund just one, but several grants um, in order to sustain a, a research career. 
So I think we'll probably have a lot of questions. So one thing I, I wanted to start with, perhaps, uh, and we can let other people chime in, the, the innovation sales pitch, I think, is, is a legitimate one, and that's one that a lot of Congress people are aware of, that you know we, we do research that leads to products that strengthens our economy. But do you find that the selling the idea of basic research can be very difficult? Because what I've found with people who are critical of science research, they say, okay, Yes, iPads make money, and NASA invented, you know, went to space, and Teflon came about, and all this stuff. But why should we study? You know, then they'll cherry pick their favorite topics that they see no direct relevance to industry or direct relevance to some eventual deliverable. And you can always cite an example from history where some obscure thing ended up making the television possible. But but for every example of that, there's there's plenty of things that didn't become a product, and maybe they inspired people to keep studying. There's a lot of these intangible benefits. And I find that people who are critical of uh, government funding of science really want to cherry pick the things that are guaranteed to start the economy and then eliminate everything else. So could you comment on that? Yeah, you're, hit, you're hitting the nail on the head, and uh, I don't know what the, the easy answer to that is, but I think it's actually kind of a problem, and you'll see it in some of the initiatives that are, that are coming up now, particularly at, at the UW, which is, is the institution that I know best. It's like, okay, we've got we've to do something about this science funding issue, and, and the easy solution is to, well, let's do academic industry partnerships, because then we don't actually have to spend any money. We can get industry to do it, and they're the ones that are benefiting from it, so everybody wins. And then they walk away feeling like they've dealt with the issue of science funding, but what they've really done is skimmed off the 1% that is a commercially viable idea in the near term, and they've sloughed that off onto a relatively low-risk investment on the part of industry to fund somebody to, to kind of work on that and look at it and turn it into a product. And that's And it lets people think that they've dealt with this issue of federal funding at the basic research level, which it hasn't even touched. And there was a lot of that, um, even among the attendees of this workshop, um, who are graduate students, but in a large part were coming from the medical or engineering side of the house, where that's maybe a little bit more viable, there was a feeling that that's okay. And I was arguing back with people a lot, saying, no, it's really not solving the problem. I don't know what to do in terms of solving that issue. You're right. Um, I mean, you really nailed it with, you know, you can cherry pick these these great cases. And and now AAAS has the Golden Goose Award where they, you know, are pointing to these basic research projects that decades down the road lead to, you know, major innovations. But that's not building a good case because it, it's too easy for somebody who doesn't like to fund basic science to point to a hundred different projects that didn't go anywhere and say, well, look at all the money that we wasted on that. You know, we should have just identified the one thing that was going to pan out and then, you know, we could have saved all this money. So I don't know. I mean, in my own mind, it's easy to frame a philosophical argument for why we need this, this basic research. I mean, it's for the good of the human entity to pursue knowledge, you know, at all these different levels and all of these things. But that's not really an argument that sells to people who are swayed by strategic arguments. So I don't know. Maybe somebody else has a good answer for that. But um, I think that that's something that we need to spend time thinking about and defining because it makes sense in our minds as the people that are doing the basic research. But I don't think that anybody's come up with a good way of boiling that down to a selling point. I don't know if others have thoughts on that. I don't know what the expression is. I think it's putting the cart in front of the horse. But 
any viable product has an origin in fundamental science. You know, you cannot develop cutting-edge technology if you haven't done the groundwork, the foundational knowledge to build a smaller transistor, you know, and that starts in the lab as a research project, you know, that yeah. maybe doesn't even have, like, a known goal. It's just when you do the research that then, oh, this has this application. And so it's, it's surprising to me that these uh, staffers don't get that. You just don't invent an iPod out of thin air, you know. There's a lot of work and a lot of knowledge that comes you know, beforehand to get to that. Um, I was also quite shocked. I mean, that's more of a comment about your statement that they didn't know how university professors are paid. That came, that knowledge came from a graduate student visiting Washington, D.C., when yeah. I think AAAS and NSF must have powerful lobbies on Capitol Hill and that something so fundamental as how a university operates was unknown is, for me, shocking. Yeah, it was shocking to me, and I we heard that over and over. Oh, I I didn't know. And I mean, you would you would see the expression on the staffers' faces of just being like, really, like this is this is how this works. And I don't know why that is. If it's just if it's falling at a logistical level that just is kind of falling between the gaps. I mean, it's not the university doesn't really care, and so it's not really the university lobbyist position to take an issue on that because. You know, if the university cared, they would fix the funding structure internally, you know, to, to the extent that they could within the guidelines of the state legislature, which is a whole other issue. So it's not really their position to advocate for, and AAAS is maybe too busy. Like, they're not concerned about quality of life of, of their members, perhaps. They're concerned about this larger picture of advocating for science for science's sake and, and getting the money into the system. And so I think that there's, you know, if we had a union <laughs> or something like that, not that I'm necessarily arguing that scientists need to develop a union, but there's no membership level quality of life argument being made. It's just not anybody's responsibility at this point in time. And I found that that was really interesting. I wonder if it's one of these things that gets taken for granted within our, our respective communities where, Outside of science, there's this perception that a professor's job is to teach classes, and that's where they get all their money from is because you pay all this money for tuition, so clearly the professors are raking it in, and they'll teach their classes and go home. And, I mean, I remember when I stepped into the research world as a grad student, I, it was very difficult to explain it to uh, friends and family members what you were doing and where the money came from, and you realize that your advisor maybe only teaches one or two classes per year, they may have a whole semester off, and they travel a lot and do all this research. And it, it was very foreign to people outside it. But once you step inside it, it becomes very familiar. And so you don't really think to ask questions about that. It's very All of us know that professors do research. But yeah. there's still most of the country that goes to college, gets a four-year degree, and sees a professor lecture, and then they go home, and that's all. They never see a lab. They never see anything else. So I think that that stereotype gets perpetuated. And so in some sense, I'm not surprised that staffers in D.C. Are, are surprised to hear this because that's been their experiences, too. And probably the yeah. AS never thought to bring it up because they're just so entrenched in it. They're a bunch of scientists, too. I think that's a good point. And you are talking a little bit about the difference between scientists talking to scientists and scientists talking to a bunch of history and poli-sci majors, which is who goes and staffs congressional offices. I mean, they're people who took a science class this one time because it was required, you know. <laughs> and so that is their experience. And 
Going along with that is this stereotype that, that I always cringe at, which is this idea that professors are horrible at teaching, which certainly is, is the case in some cases, but most of the professors that I know are quite good at it and they genuinely love it. It's just that they don't have time to do it um, with the kind of fervor that they would like to do it with. And so one thing that I think needs to be changed is that universities need to be realistic about what it takes to teach these classes and to teach them well. Most professors spend far more than 20 hours a week on their classes if you average it out around the year, and that's what the 50% funding level would suggest they should be spending. Everybody realizes, of course, that the real work week is not 40 hours, but on paper it's 40 hours, and they're spending half their time doing university service and half their time doing a grant-funded service, and that's, that's a complete lie. And the institutions need to be honest about, about that, how that's breaking down and whether they are compensating and providing the right support for those activities. I mean, all those things need to be part of the, the conversation. And, and as I can tell right now, they're really not. <laughs> so I think part of what Congress can do is maybe hold institutions accountable for this. And that was some of what I was suggesting to them is, is never, we're never going to triple NSF's budget and get rid of this problem by giving everybody massively larger grants and fewer of them. It's just sadly not in the cards, but little tweaks to the system can maybe change things. And so I'm not generally a, a fan of, of micromanagement on the part of Congress, but maybe there's a role here for, for some regulations to be placed with the federal funding saying, if you're a public institution, you're going to take federal grant funds. You know, you need to support quality of life of the grant recipients via these mechanisms. Um, you know, if you're asking them to do service, you know, these are the guidelines for what appropriate service is. And this is what we think, you know, an adequate level of compensation is for those things so that universities aren't treating their faculty as, as, as cash cows and kind of shorting them on the, uh, the compensation for their teaching efforts. I'm wondering if, as an institution, we can craft a letter and sign by all of our scientists and whether that would have a weight, you know, if it's like a legit institution signed by 15 PhDs that express their concerns about that. I don't know if 15 PhDs is a lot of voice in Washington, D.C., but perhaps it is if it's sent to the proper places. That could be an attempt. I was wondering also, in the in this case of state universities, a lot of their funding comes from the state itself. Yeah. And so, I mean, the UW has suffered quite a bit because of the funding cuts in Washington State. And so I'm wondering if, if Washington State itself knows how the university functions, you know, in terms of they know, are they also clueless like Washington, D.C. is and how salaries are, are operated? So yes. I'm wondering also if that conversation needs to be taken at the state level as well. Um, it's probably a good starting point is probably the state level. Because like you said, a lot of universities are funded through the state, and that's probably a good place to start. Your local congresspeople, your state yeah. senators, uh, you know, particularly if they're running for office, yeah. uh, they really want to, you know, they're really going to listen to you or try to listen to you. And, and, and if you keep at them, they'll, you know, they'll probably do something. I know that it's this is primarily for, for science, but it's the same problem is across all the different disciplines. Uh, yeah. Faculty are the same all the way across. They're all expected to do all this research, but yet they're expected to teach all these classes, and there is no time for research. You know, there is no compensation, no release time, no none of those things for faculty as well. So, yeah, it's the same problem. The bit that concerns me about Washington State is that 
and maybe this is ignorant on my part, but I feel like they must be more aware of it, and just the political climate is such that they don't care. It's highly polarized, and obviously this varies state by state, and also the Board of Regents certainly knows how this works, and they are the direct intermediary between the university and the state, and this should be the Board of Regents' responsibility, um, and they have not taken it on themselves. They seem to think that this is okay, um, or maybe they see it as not okay, but there's nothing we can do about it, which kind of was what catalyzed me to skip over the state level. And when this opportunity came up to this workshop, this is immediately the idea that my thoughts started to gel around is because, well, at the board region at the state level, they must know how this is working and they seem to think it's okay. If I don't think it's okay, then I can skip over them and, and bring it to a congressional delegation where they also have some control over this situation and the conversation happens at a different pace, despite the fact that we think it's highly polarized, it's maybe a little bit less polarized than it is at the state. So that was my motivation for going there, but obviously that varies state by state. Washington's maybe somewhat unique. So yeah, I think there's probably something to be gained from trying at the state level, uh, but how... That means you got to work in 50 states, and it's it would be nice to develop a national conversation against a you know with a united community of scientists um, about whether this is you know an issue or not. Okay, I tend to agree with you, Jeff, just because the states are receiving federal funding. So yeah, wrong with being the recipient of funds, whereas the federal government is the ones doling out the funds. If they can do something to make that more effective, they may they have more of an interest in that because they're not getting any benefits. And I don't know of many state granting agencies, although there are probably some, they, they're not as large as NSF and NASA and NIH. Yeah. I mean, the states should care because this is, they, they're the ones with the direct mandate through their university to provide quality education to the members, you know, to the citizens of their state. And so they have a direct vested interest in it, but somehow the conversation doesn't seem to be and like we've had this conversation in Washington State, and we've lost it. Like the the funding has been dramatically cut back, and so it seems like the ability to make a case, at least in Washington State, has already been reduced. I mean, they're so focused on the budget crisis and how to solve the budget crisis, they're not worried about strategic investment anymore. Um, whereas at the national level, there still is interest in strategic investment. Now, listeners, be sure to tune in next month for our next installment of Beer with Blue Marble Space. See you later. Science replaces private prejudice with publicly verifiable evidence. There's real poetry in the real world. Science is the poetry of reality. We can do science, and with it, we can improve our lives. 